Hello everyone and welcome back to the first Tinkham episode of the new season. This will be the August match review with myself, Joe Tweeds, as your host with my co-host Yasin McLean. Fair to say, I think as we are recording this on deadline day, both Yas and I have probably got half an eye now um, on sort of potential signings. As we are recording this, it's about 20 past eight in the UK. Um, I think Dennis Sakaria is somebody who's being heavily linked at this moment. I'm not sure whether it has been finalised or not, but possibly feels like the the last guy to, to come through the door in what has been an incredibly, incredibly busy window. I think it's, it's again, probably fair to say the start of the season hasn't really been been what Chelsea fans had, had sort of envisaged. Some, some poor performances, some poor results. Um, maybe it is a follow-on from which was a little bit of a lackadaisical kind of pre-season in terms of the prep and the, the execution. It didn't quite feel that uh, the number of minutes that were being given to players who in, in this instance have even been released by the club and in, in, in sort of looking to, to shift uh, kind of matched with the, the requirements for the beginning part of the season there. But uh, Yaz and I are going to dig into uh, this episode, I think, in, in the next couple of minutes. We're looking at, first of all, probably the, the biggest question that is on social media at the moment, which is around Thomas Tuchel um, and, and sort of the profiling of players in the squad. Are, are players being used incorrectly? Have we addressed the... The needs have we profiled what what really has been required have we got what i suppose has been required for chelsea to not just kind of maintain the status quo of being a champions league team but to possibly take a step closer in the direction of of, of liverpool and city who last season were were head and shoulders above the rest of the the premier league um we're looking certainly in terms of more of the tactical element here. We're looking at set pieces. I know Yaz has has had some some pretty robust thoughts on these in the past. I think it's, it's time to look at that again. Uh, we'll be looking at sort of the attacking phase of play again. One of the most, I think, probably one of the most prominent talking points in the Chelsea community is around Chelsea's sort of attack in general, how that sort of is, is working, how it's not working. Um, looking there in terms of sort of the, the defensive phase, you know, how we, how we counter, looking at sort of the final third play as well over the next couple of pieces. Um, um, looking a tiny bit how the new signings are settling before finishing as usual with the with the Tinker Men 10 questions where I'll be asking Yao some relatively quick fire-ish questions, some a little bit more detailed where he can give a bit more clarity and, and, and explore some of his thoughts on that. So with that being said, uh, Yaz, mate, how's it going? How's your summer been? And uh, just, uh, I suppose, a very quick intro into your sort of thoughts of, on the season thus far. Yeah, all good. Um looking forward to a new season uh, or I wasn't until until Spurs and then then I was all of a sudden the fire got lit um but uh yeah I think I think to be honest like like you said we're doing this on transfer deadline day and it's not been a perfect summer by any means and obviously we're sort of scrambling I saw a word used in an actual article I think by Jay Burt at the Telegraph called it scrambling for a midfielder now on deadline day even the 50 million euro bid that allegedly went into Alvarez at Ajax didn't scream of uh, medium term planning um, but uh, to be honest with where I thought the summer would be after the sanctions with Clear Lake and Bowley and everyone not really knowing what a summer would look like. Um, there's been deals that haven't come off famously Rafinha and stuff like that. Um, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, the start hasn't helped, um, as we'll go into about maybe why that is. The start hasn't helped. A few more points on the board would have been a lot better. It definitely feels like a team in transition, which may arguably it shouldn't with so much spent, um, which is definitely an issue. But then I guess you're, you're, you've lost players players are falling off physically 
um, it, it is more of a rebuild than I think people are letting on. Um, whether we're going about that in the right way, for sure, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about um, later on. But definitely feels like a weird sort of start, transitional season. But I do think it could have been a lot worse. The players that we have got through the door are generally pretty good ones. Um, I'm excited to see them bed in more. Um, but yeah, obviously it's not all roses at the moment. So um, what's your kind of takes been just bef- to start us off? It's... Uh, I think I'm a little bit like you. I mean, I'm I'm hesitant to to be too strong because I think, for example, the the Spurs performance in general I thought was very good. I think we actually completely and utterly outplayed them, and bar two ridiculous, you know, sort of uh, VAR decisions, it, it's it's a two 0 victory. It's comfy, and you know, we we have you know outplayed a a team that lots of of pundits and and obviously people in the media are praising and suggesting are going to do wonderful and great things this season. So after that game, I was actually fairly buoyant in terms of sort of the direction of move. But since then, uh, you know, the the Leeds performance, I think in in particular, uh, obviously the, the Southampton game as well. There's there's just so much of I think what creeps into Chelsea performances late in season. That sort of complacency and ability to hold on leads, the the legginess that we we kind of see in the latter part of, of seasons because maybe the the, there's such an over-reliance on certain members of the squad. Um, I think those two performances in, in particular have been a little bit alarming, given obviously that they have happened so early in the season. And, you know, it, with this sort of weird kind of mid-season World Cup and, and City just obviously with the, the signing of Erling Haaland just appearing like they could win this league in, in second gear. Um, you're kind of looking around now and thinking like, you know, have... Have Chelsea really got enough in certain areas to to sort of maintain that status quo and and hopefully um, sort of be in a position that they can again be be sort of a Champions League team come next season? There are other teams, obviously, who I think have improved enormously over the summer. And I think your point about spending so much money and, and whether it's the the right investments, right areas of the pitch, right players, even um, you know the the sums we have spent has, you know, has that really closed the gap? Has it even maintained the status quo? Um, I think the next sort of spate of games is going to be incredibly telling in terms of, you know, Thomas Tuchel. There are obviously, I think, some concerns about how he is maybe sort of managing the team. And there was a little bit of a weird thing. I think I can't remember which one of the away games where he had sort of travelled up differently from the team. And it's not sort of the the kind of positive news that you want or, or anecdotal stuff coming out of the club or surrounding the club that, that is conducive to you know, you sort of having a successful start to the season. So I'm still, I think I'm still in the position, Yaz, of of thinking that, you know, it has to get better. It should improve. Um, but I think we're, we're getting some of those concerning performances, same players, um, same sort of issues that we've seen over a number of years. But to have it happen this early in the season, I think is that's, that's probably where the concerning part is for me. I think, um, yeah, it wasn't just the pitch that made the Southampton game feel like it was mid-December. Um, it did look leggy. It didn't, look great I think mentally I'm probably going to talk about that a lot mentally it doesn't feel great at the moment there's a lot of arm waving and a lot of um when goals go in just a lot of people standing there in a bit of a stupor um so yeah obviously the Southampton game's fresh in the mind and there was the there was the Cucurella block that he positioned himself quite well for that Mendy was had no chance that it was always already on the way down everyone else kind of just like didn't really even respond to that it was just a bit like oh well you know even the Thiago Silva clearance off the line which we'll talk about in the set piece 
minutes in a minute. Again, it was just like, okay, we've got away with it. And then you'd expect maybe tails to be up next five minutes. Didn't really happen. So I think the mentality is a bit concerning. I do think the... I do think the way Tuchel's speaking is not great at the moment either. Not to be too negative, because I think there are positive things. I think a lot of the players who've come in have been good, and we will talk about those. But um, it is just it is just worrying trends, I think. Um, and it did make me think, and I think I've already sent you this, but it felt, the Southampton thing, the game afterwards felt so, the mood was so bad that I just thought, you know what, let's compare this to the end of Lampard. Um, I'm not saying, I personally, I'm not Tuchel out. But I, I have this weird feeling that if there's not a quick turnaround in results soon, I think we're in this weird position where the owners are new and are clearly very much pro Tuchel because it's all they know. And they've come in and they've backed it. And um, there's word in reporting that they want to be more um, medium term, long term, not as not the chaos and trophies of before. Um so it'll be it would feel really weird for Tuchel to lose the job and I don't particularly want Tuchel to lose the job but it is one of those things where um just the atmosphere has to change I think and and the results have to change so I looked at Tuchel and Lampard just their entire entirety and it's a bit rudimentary here but I looked at the xG and the xG against for their entirety and points per game um and Tuchel xG 1.74 xG against 0.88 1.92 points per game for his entirety of Chelsea tenure. And when you consider the sanctions and players wanting to leave and the turnover and all sorts of stuff, that's, that's not bad going, to be honest. Um, Lampard, for his entirety of his 57 games against Tuchel, Tuchel 62, was just shy of the XG as 1.7 to 1.74, which I found quite surprising, considering that we think back to the Lampard time of this kind of more free-flowing and attack-minded um, game. XG was only 1.03, so a little bit like just weaker than Tuchel on both ends. Then I looked at the last 19 games. I picked the word the number 19 because that was the amount of games that Lampard had at the start of his um, second season. And Lampard's point per games had gone down from 1.63 to 1.42, so not not too dramatic there. The XG was pretty XG against was pretty stable, and the XG had just dropped by point. Zero nine. It wasn't dramatically different. Too cool, though. You look at his last nineteen games, and again, it's just gone down from one point nine two points per game to one point seven nine, one point oh seven xg from point zero point eight eight, which is quite a steep increase in terms of a team where we don't create and score a lot. We really need that xg against to be airtight, and it is slipping. Um, and then the xg was pretty stable in terms of chances created. Then I looked at Lampard's last eight where it went all wrong and it was 0.88 points a game. It was it was a couple wins from eight. It was really poor and it, the results did merit the change. Um, Tuchel's still getting 1.4 points per game, one, per game for this season to start. So the points are kind of stable-ish, um, even though they are regressed from the last 19 and from the 62 in total. The XG against shot up to 1.32. Now, okay, you've got a 10-man 60-minute performance against Leicester, but that's the average for the whole five. The XG created's dropped right down to 1.4. So we're talking now for this start of the season, the XG against is 1.32, and the XG created four is 1.4 on average. Lampard's last eight games, it was 1.39 XG to Tuchel's 1.4, 
and it was 1.2 xg against Tuchel's 1.32. So now the points are not as dramatically stark as that Lampard period, but the underlying sort of creation metrics are almost identical. The mood is not great. We've got players coming in, which are very much his signings in terms of Sterling and Aubameyang and Koulibaly and, and Fofana, which is great. Um, and I do think they're all good signings and Kukurea as well. And I think we should give credit for that because a lot of people were going to talk about the talent misprofile and everything like that. But there's good signings that have been made, so you've got to give credit to those. Um, but he's going to really need those players that are his players and the young players like Mason, Kai, Reese to really be behind him because you have so many unhappy players in terms of wanting to leave that are disappointed that their moves got blocked like Pulisic and Ziyech and Chalabar, etc. Um, that I just, I'm a bit concerned looking at those numbers. The points are kind of okay for now, but could have very easily been three less if Leicester had just gone the other way. Um, Spurs was a brilliant performance, but probably should have been out of sight and it wasn't. Everton squeaked through with a Jorginho penalty, so... The creation and the underlying numbers there are concerning. Um, but, yeah, I digress. We'll, we'll get into maybe the more details of why now. Yeah, I, th- I think just picking up on your on your profiling point there, Yaz, I think this is, it, it's probably certainly one of the most prominent conversations that, that is is sort of happening and, and going, I'm going to say go around in circles, but it, it does seem to be an incredibly regular discussion point um, across all spectrums of, of social media at the moment. And I think just to, just to set the tone here, do you want to sort of outline what sort of the main for and against are? And then we can have our, I know this is maybe one of the, the rare things that we, we have a disagreement on. So if you want to maybe give the for, the general for and against, and then we can sort of give a view of, of, of where we kind of stand on this. Uh, the profiling? Yeah, the profiling stuff, yeah. Well, I think I just, I've seen a lot of people, my take is this, I'm seeing a lot of people I don't think this would be as much uh, of an issue if it wasn't Connor struggling, arguably. I don't think he struggled as bad as actually the headlines suggest, but um, I think a lot of people are kind of looking for... The, the Connor one is the one that really gets me. Is like, yes, he's excelled at Crystal Palace as a late-to-the-box finisher, but it's not like he was a creative fulcrum at Palace, you know? I've, and I'd maintain that his best role is probably the third man of a three-man midfield. I'm not, I'm not debating that at all. But if you want to play for Chelsea Football Club, you want to play for Champions League football clubs, you're going to, and you're you're in a double pivot. It's not too much to demand that you play on the half turn, are able to be aware and scan your surroundings before you get the ball, not get caught under pressure. Now, there's a very, very good argument that when he struggled against Leeds, he wasn't the worst midfielder on the pitch. I would agree with that. And then Leicester, you could argue he was the last man back on the corner on a yellow Okay, cool. I think both of the yellows were really, really clumsy. I actually think his first 25 minutes against Leicester was not bad at all. And so I I see that he can't play a pivot thing a bit. I just disagree with it. I think he played in a pivot at West Brom and was successful there, albeit in a much worse team. Um, I think he does have the industry and the energy to to play in that role. I think maybe he's never going to be the ball progressor that uh, Kovacic is, but if Kat, it's not like Kante receives it off the centre-backs and turns on the, and, and can play it 40 yards either, you know? So um, I do think there's a little bit of the Connor can't play six thing. I'm not saying he's a sole six. He, I agree he definitely can't do that, but I think he should be able to play in a double pivot and have a partner like Jorginho do arguably the heavy lifting or whoever it may be. Um 
And I think I think if I was Connor, I'd be almost offended by it. I'd be like, well, no, I'm a midfielder. This is my job. I want to be the best midfielder I can be. And I think saying that I can only touch the ball when it's in the opposition box um, and Preston Harry is, is all borderline insult. So we'll get into Connor Gallagher a little bit. And I, and I agree that there's maybe where his strengths are at Palace is not going to be what he is at Chelsea because you have arguably better players in those advanced areas. Then there's the yeah. the Mount role, and Mount's of Mount's an interesting one. He's maybe just been moved around too much, but it's funny when Mount's in a good vein of, vein of form, everyone loves the versatility. Oh, he can play on the left, he can play on the right, he can play deep, he can play in the three, he can support the attack so well. Like when he was good, it was the versatility was a strength, and now he, oh, he's getting moved around too much. Um, Raheem Sterling. Now, I agree that maybe Miss Raheem Sterling we we should be using in a slightly different way. I think we're asking for a little bit too much in terms of him to generate creation. He's not Eden Hazard, but I would also argue he is the most creative and most able dribbler we have right now. So that kind of comes with the territory of being a £50 million signing um, and, and playing for a club where you're one of the main men. And I think that's part of the motivation that he joined. Um, and these last two games... Leicester and Southampton, now the goals have started coming, so that could be really good. I definitely agree that his um, best asset is getting in behind, especially from the left, um, one-twos, quick decisions. Um, he probably needs three chances to score one, but he gets in them because his movement is so good. But then for that to happen, you need players who can play 40-yard passes and straight away get him in behind, and we don't currently have that. So part of the the byproduct of that is that he has to shoulder a little bit more creation then there's the Ruben and Reese stuff and right center back and right wing back and I actually think those have been really really cool I, I like that um okay yeah Reese is not scoring like he was at right wing back but I love that he's more central when he's on the digital box so I, I don't think it's a thing of oh Tuchel's an idiot and he doesn't understand what players strengths are I think there's give and take and there's compromise and there's what he thinks enhances things from other players Yes, some of them aren't perfect, but I don't think any are crazy. I don't think Connor is incapable of playing in a midfield too, you know? And I don't think Mount is... Mount's versatility is one of his aspects of a player. I think if he loses that, then he maybe loses the standing in the game. Ruben I quite like as a right wing back because as we saw against Southampton, I think he was as defensively suspect, maybe more so than Jorginho when he's in the middle and he's always struggled to defend sort of what's behind into the sides of him. So it's nice that he just has that channel on the right. So I think there's a lot of opinions that can get thrown around and it's so funny that it, winning does change it all. Like if we had won three or five or four or five, I don't think these issues would be there. Um... But I think you have a slightly different view. So so come at me, bro. <laughs> I think I, I was thinking about this as you were talking. And I think the the question of profiling, I think, has come from now that I'm sort of thinking about it a bit more, a bit more thoughtfully has come from, I think, a lot of the, the you know, the narrative that Tuka has effectively been leading the sort of the recruitment charge and, and some of sort of the names and some of the the players that we've been linked with. I think when I look at, you know, looking at, at, at players to come in and and start or to, to rotate or to plug gaps or, or maybe just the sort of this obsession with with trying to sign 750 centre-backs this summer, I think the the talent identification for me probably start, maybe is is a little bit more abstracted than looking at sort of the the profile of the, the squad as a whole. Um, you know, how a, a coach who has been given effectively, it feels like the keys this summer to, to go and recruit and to to sort of pick 
um, maybe not completely paid, but sort of have a real significant input into who the club signs, can see, you know, the the mounting injury record of guys like Kante and, and Kovacic and, and, and you know, with, I think, Jorginho has, has probably taken a little bit more of a, a step back this season in terms of his, his performances for the beginning part of the season. But it, it was kind of always going to happen, that particularly with Kovacic and, and Kante, who give you so much, um, obviously, when they're, when they're fit and informed, but have, have rarely... Uh, if ever completed, you know, a, you know, a real chunky part of uh, of a season in terms of playing that that sort of majority of minutes and looking at, at that as a, a probably an inherent weakness that the squad have had maybe since the Manu Matic departed many moons ago, um, and scrambling around as you've, you sort of used the word earlier, scrambling around on deadline day to grab a guy on loan with an option to buy, who you know, albeit when certainly in Germany was a was a really really interesting player and somebody that I had earmarked as a potential Chelsea signing maybe quite hasn't happened for him at Juventus, um, maybe hasn't quite got back or hit the heights post-injury. Um, he's not necessarily injury-prone, but certainly hasn't hit the heights that he had in, in Germany. Um, but it just felt a little bit like the 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 rather obvious thing that Chelsea needed, which was a fit and, and starting calibre central midfielder got sort of overlooked in lieu of trying to sign every centre back under 23 that they could they could sort I of set you. their FM filters you're on. not going to you're not going to have me disagree that midfield's an area of need um I've you I mean we if we go back to August last year we both sort of laughed at the idea that Saul coming in on loan was the only um answer to midfield and now lo and behold we're getting another person in on loan like we're not going to disagree on that at all and I but I would just argue that in Tuchel's mind he lost his undroppable centre-back from last season and AC Christensen between right centre-back and his and the central role um, probably his second most played defender last season so it, it's, it's difficult and it's a bad planning byproduct that we had them expiring as we did but I think there was a big responsibility to get those signings right um, and I know you're a big Wesley Fofana fan. I've been a big Khalidou yeah. Koulibaly fan for years. So I think between the two of us, we're pretty happy with those signings. And I, you're not going to get me to disagree. I think midfield is a massive area of need. Should have sorted it. But I would contest that I would have rather um, not... It's the same thing I said with Lukaku at this time last year. I said I would have rather bid twice for Haaland on this podcast. And I said I would have... Um, just not signed a striker to get the right one. And then fast forward a year and we're loaning a guy out on God knows what wages we're contributing and it's a humiliating signing. I would rather wait and get it right. Similar to last January, everyone was saying, oh, we need uh, Luca Dean from, who's now at Villa. I would rather, so that's where I think this isn't so much a misprofiling thing. I get you in that the squad priority is there and that's a blind spot, similar to Jurgen Klopp. He's basically held his hands up and said, yeah, I was wrong about needing a midfielder myself. I think Tuchel's probably said the same thing now, albeit a bit too late to be really successful with one. But I, I, I see a lot of criticism about what is in the building um, and, and it being misused. And I'm not 100% it is misused. I see it in the Gallagher example, in the Mount example, massively in the Havertz example, kind of as an excuse for just why players aren't performing and, and lack of accountability on their part. So we are aligned with midfield, 100%. Obviously, I'm with you. But I would contest that I'd rather have waited a year for someone proper than spending £85 million on Frankie de Jong, who didn't want to come. Yeah. Um, or £50 million on Alvarez, who 
whether the speed of the, I, I like him as a destroyer, but whether the speed of the Premier League, it seemed very knee jerk and panicked by it. I don't know. Um, I'd rather get the right player next year than a stopgap now. Um, and you know, this yeah, it's not ideal, but I, I think it's more. I'm seeing a lot about the misprofiling within the squad. Is there any that I like outline that that you really contest with and you think he is misusing? I think I think that there's maybe I think the Havertz one is interesting because. I think now, certainly now that we don't have a centre forward, I mean, they're, again, obviously in terms of Aubameyang potentially coming in and whatever that sort of entails, but he has become sort of the focal point of, of Chelsea's sort of spluttering attack. And I don't think many people have really sort of seen the the, the way that you use him. And I think maybe that habits and the utilisation, I know maybe, you know, when he's playing with Sterling, that I've actually seen Sterling back to goal down the middle, maybe a bit more often than I would have anticipated. And was a little bit unsure what the dynamic was there in terms of I would maybe prefer to see Sterling playing off of Havertz and not the other way around. I think the other thing as well with Reese James playing a lot of right centre back, I think come who the game was where he sort of shifted to, to right wing back and immediately sort of set up a, a goal. Um, you've got Trev Chalaber still capable of playing right centre back. And, and you know, I, I do agree. That I think Ruben has actually been um, more than surprisingly good in that sort of position. We know that he had played there at times last season, but this season in particular, I think he's had some very, very good outings there. Um, I think you and I both agree that if, if he defends in sort of a, a straight line in midfield in a pivot or as part of a, a two-man midfield for some reason, um, that sort of lack of ability to pick up what's behind him versus when he has had very, I think, very solid games or, or decent games as a, a sort of a lone holding player where he's got more um, onus on him to sort of scan and to, to be the, the guy who's sort of screening the back, the back four. Just quickly, for all the flack that Jorginho obviously got for Southampton's second goal, Go back and watch Ruben's role in it. He like he has a relatively simple screening job of keeping the ball to our left hand side, their right hand side, and I think it's Lavia. He gets the ball to Ward Prowse as if he's genuinely not there, and it's like it's the sort of thing that Jorginho would rightfully get crucified for for not being an uh, effective deterring presence. And Ruben, I love Ruben. What a player he's! I've, I think he's been one of our best players to start this season in the role that he's had. Um, I think he's sometimes the only avenue we have of getting up the pitch. And I think he's been fantastic. But I, to be honest, I, I quite like the role that he's had on that right-hand side. I think we saw it at Bernabeu, how, how well it could work. I, I like Reese coming inside more. I don't love Reese being too far away from goal. I think, to be honest, I think if you look back at the games, and we'll get into this in detail, I think there's been a concerted effort to go more from towards a four slash two in build-up allowing Reese to get more central to treat him as our Cancelo, our Trent, um, to the point where against Everton, Mason Mount was basically on the on the touchline getting chalk on his boots to, the, to his detriment. Um, so I get it. Like people, the simple thing is, oh, Reese scored so many at right wing back. He should be at right wing back. And maybe the Fafana deal puts him back there. But I do I, I do like that right-hand side. And I think it's, it's worked really well, especially against um, Spurs, less so against Leeds. But... Yeah, that's do, what Tuchel touched on with Do you think people are Rubens. seeing, like, let's say with Connor, for example, I, I actually agree. I think the leads, the first 20 minutes, he actually started to look way more comfortable um, in that role. But do, do you think people are just sort of seeing the, um, you know, sort of the, the sending offs that he's had and, and maybe some some lesser games 
um, while he's adapting and, and actually just, just taking just, that as a as a yeah, complete I, like you know indictment I, I, of his inability. Do you know what it that. is? I think I think the Chelsea support is so divisive, and this has been like this since Sari Lampard and whatever, and we've talked about this. I think the the people who wanted Cobham to, um, Cobham to do well, Connor to do well, slip of the tongue there. The people who are big proponents of Connor Connor and Cobham, I think, have seen him arguably struggle in two games. He was by far not the only one struggling against Leeds. We got battered. Um, and the yellows against Leicester were really, really sloppy. The first one he doesn't need to do. The one at the corner, Trev is absolutely pelting back. Just jockey. Just run back. Delay, delay, delay. He does not need to get those two yellows. But it's inexperience. Although, yes, he's had four loans, three years, and he's he's had a lot of senior football. There's nerves of being a, a, a player at Chelsea and, and there's higher stakes. And... I think it's been a knee-jerk defence of Connor, and I think it comes from a place of fear that he maybe won't get trusted again. And I think that's something valid, and I would be unhappy with Tuchel for that, to be honest, because Koulibaly got a pathetic yellow, double yellow, red, and got straight back in the team. Now, your job as a coach is not to shit all over Connor for having a rough couple games where he's shown glimpses of really good stuff. He's cut out a lot of counters, which I think is a massive strength of his game. When he has the ball facing forwards, he's made some good passes. Raheem Sterling's, I believe, offside offside goal or the just wide was from Connor putting him through. He's put Raheem through two or three times this season really well. Um, I think it's, it's that natural divisive thing of, oh, it's Tuchel's fault why he's got those two yellows. Uh, no, it's not. He's He's had a rough start. Um, it's Tuchel's job to get him back in the team and firing, but I think he, I think that is his natural role in this team. People want him in the one of the attacking midfield spots so he can press a bit more. Uh, I would argue over who. Firstly, I don't think he's the final third player that um, Mason Mount or Raheem Sterling are. Um, maybe you don't want Ziyech near the team as shown at Southampton, and that's fair. Um, but I, I don't think he's incapable of playing in a midfield two and if he's a career centre midfielder incapable of playing in a midfield two then he probably won't last long at Chelsea unfortunately um I think people forget he play, he actually grew up playing in that obviously Chelsea's academy used to play a lot of 43-1 and he would never be the 10 he'd always be in a, a pivot I, I think it's so funny yeah. bro like because people I saw someone criticise Hit people are oh, because he's got energy. You think he's a pivot player? Well, I would I would contest because he's got blonde highlights and an Alice band and scored a few goals. People think he's a ten. He's a box to box midfielder, and a box to box midfielder should be able to play in a pivot. I'm sorry, it's just he should, and he has at West Brom um, and and in the youth teams, as you alluded to. I think it's very similar to Havertz. It's like do you know what? What's an easier conclusion to draw to and conversation to have the fact that our 72 million pound at the time record signing has not sniffed a goal in five games and is showing half if that of the creativity that he was showing in Germany which made him such a hot prospect sorry and I'm a, I loved the signing at the time I was a big fan yeah, of what he same. did at Leverkusen I loved the signing I was I was all in on it He's not been good. Um, he's he's struggled. People will say, oh, he's not playing in the right role. Then you turn around and you ask them what role it is and you get four different answers. Oh, no, he should do this. He should do... Again, he's a player that we signed on the basis of he'd been good as a seven, good as a 10, good as a nine at Leverkusen, even a little bit of eight inside on the right. 
So then, so then it, it's great when it's versatility, and then all of a sudden it's a problem when when he can't cut it. If if we're playing in a defensively sound system, I think being a nine with with runners off him, arguably that is where they could help him more, is is the only answer for him. You're not going to tell me that Kai Havertz's performances merit putting him as a number ten. The at the. Um, discarding of defensive structure in the same way that Juan Mata did or the same way that Eden Hazard did because their output, the return justified it. We're not going to get that return. And the credit to Havertz is he's actually done a lot of hard running, hard pressing, a lot of good back-to-goal work. He's won a lot of headed balls. Um, He's played positionally really disciplined. He's gone out to the right when he needs to. And and again, that's a conversation we can have about whether we agree with how Tuchel's using um, Havertz and Sterling. Because I think he has sort of tried to go with an old school little and large thing there in terms of Havertz and Sterling being split strikers that help out in the channels and come inside for the... For the balls, and I, I'm not a fan, a huge fan of using Havertz like that, but I, I understand the rationale. But again, I think it's it's a little bit excuse finding. I think if a player is a quality player, they make themselves effective in the role they're given. Reese James, whoever he's, right centre back, right back, right wing back, is positively affecting the game. Ruben Loftus Cheek, if he's in midfield at right wing back, he will have games where he's positively affecting the game. Conor Gallagher, before his two yellows, was positively affecting the game as a pivot. Mason Mount for two and a half years have been put all over the place and positively affected games. Um, and I think it's a very, it's a bit of a Pogbaification of, oh no, they just need this to unlock them. They just need this to unlock them. Now there's two, there is issues with two call. That's cool. I get that. But I do think fans are very quick at the moment to blame the misprofiling. I'm not sure I agree. Honestly, I'm just not, but, but I'm happy to be disagreed with. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's probably a, a fair po- like point to, to sort of conclude the the first first segment of, of this week's Tinkerman episode. I, I think probably just the the thing with Havertz again, you know, I think a really good question is something I would like to get some some feedback on from listeners. You know, if you are going to commit to building a team around a player, and that player is Havertz, what is the system? Where are you playing him? Who are the sort of the, the supporting cast? Then. I think to Yaz's point there, you know, the, you know, you commit to playing in Hazard on the left wing and giving him Aspilicueta to do literally all of his defensive work because because of Hazard's, you know, creative metrics, the goals that he would score, the assists that he would rack up, the the players that he would draw to him. You would do the same with Wamata because, you know, the one season that he really got the keys to the to the car, um, what was it the twelve thirteen season? I mean, he had like like 40, 50 near, nearly goal contributions in a season, which is insane to think of. You know, when we we don't get that probably from our attack and, and midfield combined these days. So um, I, I would be really interested in, in getting, getting feedback on, on Havertz, where his best position is in, in this team, how you feel that he should be, be utilised. And I, again, I think I, I agree certainly on the on the Gallagher piece in, in general. Um, you know, I remember watching him play an awful lot of, of uh, you know, the, the, the old double pivot, like the current double six in terms of the the lingo that we use these days and certainly as an academy player certainly at West Brom and you know he does have a, a very sort of traditional midfield skill set he has you know maybe to his detriment made his name at Palace as a, a kind of fern, final fur kind of you know uh, late penalty box entry guy goal scoring midfielder hustle bustle etc and maybe there is an element of of trying to incorporate too much of that in deeper areas of the pitch or whatever it might be but I, I certainly don't think that he as you were saying that he he can't play there um 
I think moving forward, so as we sort of approach the, the first ad break here, we will, I think, certainly be looking at, I think, one of Yaz's uh, passions. I don't know if it's a passion, Yaz, but certainly you're you're more keenly in tune with set pieces than most people. And I think we've, we've got some interesting things since the last time we, we dug into this. So uh, we'd like to thank the sponsors, obviously, for continuing to financially support the show. We'll be back after the break where Yaz and I will be taking a look at the Chelsea set piece situation this season and a little bit of a spoiler alert, it's not that great. Hello Chelsea fans and welcome back to the second part of the August Tinkerman review here. This is your host Joe Tweez and I'm being joined by my illustrious co-host Jasmine McLean as we will be looking at, as we say, sort of the, the August games, the start of the season that Chelsea have had. And I think before we get into sort of more of what I would consider the, the game model kind of stuff, the tactical deployments, the, the way that Chelsea are, are building up play, the chance creation aspects, etc., I think we, we need to start a little bit, Yaz, by, by partially giving you some of your flowers, although I'm not sure you're too happy to see some of your, your words coming true. But I think this season, and it's not something I've necessarily seen touched on. I know that we did a, a real kind of interesting segment on this and it got some great feedback um, sort of back in, I mean, the back end of last season when we were looking at sort of set pieces and the Anthony Barry effect and, and things of that nature. But this season, it it's fair to say that it hasn't been that great and i think if we may maybe we'll just take a look at a few games and a few instances but the let, let's start maybe on on the the attacking end of the picture the the attacking movements that chelsea have now um you could argue with with kudabali coming in and obviously silver being very good in the air and and maybe with habits that chelsea have a little bit more height um at set pieces and maybe some some more obvious threats but that hasn't always necessarily translated to um, sort of decent set piece routines, whether those are wide free kicks or free kicks in general or corner deliveries. And just, I just really give you the floor here just to have a look at sort of the attacking, the attacking setup on set pieces and, and really what, what, if anything, that we are achieving from them at the moment. To be honest, even last year when we did a little bit on the Anthony Barry stuff, what we, our conclusion kind of was, was they're not, there's not like particularly clever set pieces, but they're working pretty well. Um, but it was doing the same thing over and over and over. And it, it wasn't that elaborate. It wasn't that sort of unique. It was trying to hit the front post and then got a Havertz goal at Anfield out of it. And Thiago Silva got found against West Ham away. And But I think I think what's really shown sort of this year is, especially Silva and Rudiger, I think we were relying massively on finding those guys. But And it became clear by the end of the season when that kind of got telegraphed a little bit, Silva's involvements from them dried up. It was very much those individuals rather than any grand elaborate scheme. And and I do I'm not gonna change tack entirely on last season. I don't necessarily think every set piece needs to be a circus act. Um, as much as the viral ones are really cool and when they work, it's amazing. I think if they, if you have too many or if they're too elaborate, then the communication's just gonna break down and not they're not gonna work. But we've been pretty um Pretty uninspiring from them going forward this year, barring the Koulibaly volley, which was outstanding. Um, but on another day, that kind of just flies over the bar. Um, but I'm, my my main worry about them, to be honest, is 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 uh, the other way. Um, we have been low on the on the set piece xG in terms of this season, whereas before we were sort of top between top five and top ten, depending on what you looked at in terms of xg from a set piece or how many shots we were getting what that what was what we were good at last year we'd get a lot of shots even if they weren't the best chances but i would argue at set pieces that shots are arguably more 
as valuable as, as high value chances because the ball's bouncing, there's so many bodies in there, deflections, etc., etc. I think if you get a shot out of a set piece, you've done pretty well. Um, in saying that, this season we are bottom four with Villa, Bournemouth and, and Leicester for set piece XG. Um, and we're right down there in mid-table for set-piece shots. The only goal we've had is that Koulibaly wonder goal. Um, in terms of the setup, it's again, it's not that inspiring. It's try and hit the front post. I think if you remember Everton, we had about 12 corners in a row of trying to hit the front post. And I get it. It's um, If you get anything on at the front post, it's very hard to stop with the speed that it comes at it. But it's just not that fun to watch and it's not that inspiring. And once you kind of realise what the team are doing, it's, it's pretty, well, relatively easy to stop. Where I'm really concerned is the other way. Um, so although Chelsea weren't the most elaborate, special set-piece team last year, what we were fantastic at was defending set-pieces. Even when we had sort of funny uh, images of Aspie defending Van Dijk at a corner at Anfield and stuff, we were outstanding Um the, the zone was was pretty good. We were top three pretty much for the whole season, maybe top four in terms of defending set pieces, in terms of XG and shots. We were, we were really, really good in our record. This season, in five games, we've already conceded, I think it's three goals. We're going to go through them in a minute, so so we'll find out. I think it's three goals from set pieces, um, which is second in the league. Um, and in terms of set piece XG against we're sort of mid-table, but going from where we were, that's that's a pretty big drop-off. And I think we haven't quite worked out how to fix the personnel. So what we did last year was a lot of sort of L-shaped zone of a near post and then across the six-yard box. And the players we would have in that were Marcus Alonso, uh, Romelu Lukaku at the front of it when he was in the team, um, Rudiger was, was sometimes in there, sometimes he'd do the man marking, Christensen was in there. We've downgraded a lot of positions aerially in terms of who we're now looking at in terms of who's actually in the team. So if we go straight up, immediately I worried about this against Everton because we started with the back three that had Aspie in it. So we had Aspie on the pitch. Thiago Silva, for all of his leap and his ability in the air, is not a, it's not a big guy. He's a great, great at sticking with markers and he is good in the air, but you wonder if that bounce is kind of going to fade over the next year as, as he gets more and more games in his legs. Koulibaly is a downgrade on Rudiger aerially. While I prefer him as a player all round, and I think he's better on the ball, he's not as good in the air as Rudiger. Marcus Alonso to Mark Kukurea is about five inches less of a player in, in the air. Um, and we know how proficient Marcos was in aerially. Now, Lukaku's role has been taken up by Havertz, so that's not that big a downgrade. Havertz is doing that role pretty well. But then you've also got Raheem Sterling in the team now, who is a total non-factor in the air and Raheem Sterling's job in the set pieces at the moment just seems to be if it gets cleared run and against better teams when you have a spare man there in the box who's doing next to nothing they're, they're taking advantage of that um, so if we go against the the Spurs game we'd already shown a bit of vulnerability and what we had decided to do there was just compensate for that lack of height that lack of ability that lack of a marking ability if we actually look at who's man marking on set pieces at the moment is Mason Mount, it's people like Conor Gallagher, it's people like Reese James. They're just not good. Mark Kukurea, Jorginho, they're not good in the air. Um, so Spurs worked this out towards the end and just front loaded that front post. Before Hurricanes equaliser, they actually got first contact at the front post as well, the corner before that where Kukurea had his hair pulled. 
So there's a red flag straight away, even though I was a bit worried from Everton. Then we go to Leeds. Leeds get a free kick where basically it goes over Gallagher's head and Reese James is just outdone in the air. He's, he's just a bit late to it, but that's not his game. He's not a penalty box marker. So there's there's a worry there. And then against against Leicester, um, to be honest, like Harvey Barnes, I think it was, who got a header where he had a foul on, on Mendy and it was rightfully ruled out, but it was a clear header. They had another opportunity prior to that. Mendy is not playing with any confidence at the moment, even though I have my reservations about him. I do admit his, his level isn't where it can be for him. So it could have been another one against Leicester. And then Southampton, it seems like what they do, if you go back and watch that goal, is they've just decided to massively overcompensate for the lack of height and put everyone in the six-yard box, whether it be man or zonal, I think it was more about the zonal because even in a later set piece when there was no box or diamond of Southampton players around Mendy and there were runners, still everyone was in the six-yard box. Um, and that was what led to Lavia getting just a clean shot on the on the edge of the box where there was no one challenging for the second ball, no one there to hook it out, no one there to get there quick enough after Azpi's bad clearance. So Tuchel's talked about this publicly. He said we immediately need to defend set-piece better. But to be honest... The personnel is massively downgraded in terms of what we can do aerially and physically. Um, massively strong, but it's noticeable. And it's, it's. I was concerned about it from Everton. So the fact that it's kind of, we've conceded nearly four in the three games since is, um, or four games since is not that surprising to me. I guess the, the question on, on a defensive stuff here, yes, is if you have a team that, I completely agree in terms of the assessment. You know, people, I think, often laughed at, uh, you know, Marcus Alonso being picked for his height and because it, it seems to be such a sort of basic, you know, Sunday league thing that you, you want players who are physical and, and have height and can defend at pieces. But when you are removing both height and area ability from the team, what what is, I suppose, what, what would be a way as a coach that you would look to to mitigate that without necessarily, you know, having to to change the the personnel because it feels like unless you know obviously the the Sakaria signing comes in, he's a tall guy from memory, you know, was was very good in the air in Germany in terms of his ability to win headers, but that doesn't seem like that is going to be enough when your you know your midfield combined height is is five foot five. You, as you mentioned, Raheem Sterling is is unlikely to win headers, and you've got guys like Mason Mount man marking, you know, sort of six foot three, six foot four defenders. What is the what is the way that you would look to to try and increase our ability to to either get get a body in the way or to to get some sort of contacts on the ball? Is there a different shape defensively that you would look at? Is does Mendy need to take more of a prominent role in terms of coming out? What what are sort of the the options that you think Tuchel has here? I think the signings will genuinely help, and I know that's an easy answer. I think Fafana is very good in the air. I think Abamyang is underrated in the air, even if marking's not his natural thing to do. Um, I'd say he's better than, than some of what we have in their marking currently. Um, and I think zonally, I think you, you just, I think a lot of mind markers, if they, if they don't have a chance to win the header, which someone like Mason Mount won't, someone like Reese James even regularly won't, um, against bigger teams, you just have to disrupt and be as physically robust and strong in there and not allow, um, any runs to come off. I definitely think Mendy needs to take a bigger role, but that can be easily kind of countered by teams who just put two guys or one guy on the goalkeeper and disrupt there. We got away with the foul at Leicester, um, against Leicester, sorry, at home to Leicester, but Aaron Ramsdale conceded a goal um, where a Villa player had two arms around him. So there is the risk you run of just 
if a ref decides not to protect the keeper that day, then you're in trouble. So I think Aubameyang will help. I think Fafana will help. Um, I, th- I did think the Alvarez signing, to be honest, had one eye or, or bid at least, had one eye on set pieces. Um, because I do think three players out of the six that we have who are so unqualified will make a massive difference. I think, I think, yeah, to be honest, let's wait and see what they try and do. Because I think zonally, people, people insult zonal marking and say there's no accountability, that there is like man marking can concede goals too. Um, but yeah, I don't really have the, when you're that small, um, I think they, they kind of have the right idea of having that wall around the six yard box and, and, going for the second balls and and everything like that. If you can't get first contact, disrupting physically, ensuring that no second balls or or shots on goal. But then to do it as extreme as they did against Southampton, I don't know if that was a miscommunication or just a really bad idea because Premier League footballers having the ball drop on the edge of the box. If you're not out in an instant and you get a good crack at goal where the keeper's blindsided, um, yeah, it didn't surely can't be the plan. But then they did it again later in the game. So... um, yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough, but I think it's it's a big concern considering we're already fragile in other kind of aspects at the moment in terms of mood, in terms of quite a blunt attack, in terms of leaking goals that we otherwise wouldn't. That's the funny thing about the Southampton game. We it wasn't like we were dominated. Two of their like three or four real chances went in, um, and we had the ball for large, large swathes of the match. So set pieces is something that you have to get on top of and you can't just allow yourself to go one down cheaply. Um, it's not a coincidence that City and, and Liverpool have such a good grasp on set pieces. So over to Anthony Barry, really. I think you're right. I think Mendy needs to take responsibility. I think they need to be smarter about where they position people and, and you can analyse where other teams regularly deliver their their balls and, and who the targets are. And I think the signing should help, but definitely something to watch for the end of September and, and if we can improve with that and I think again it's it's becoming less of a, a point that's made now but maybe I think just to finish up the the section on set pieces looking at a, a few I would say a few calls from some prominent people on socials talking about you know zonal marking or that this sort of hybrid marking that we do versus just going man for man I mean I think it, it's probably fair to say that you know going man for man with you know Cucurello and and guys who are under 5'10", 5'11", you know, guys are under six foot, it's probably not the the sort of the thing that is going to solve the situation here. If you're going to put, you know, smaller guys on, you know, five, six, seven, however many bodies are in the box there, um, it feels like you are automatically going to sort of concede so much in terms of that physical battle and that you don't necessarily have the, you know, the, the stronger aerial players looking after those sort of critical zones. So is, it, is this again just a, another one of those slightly, I don't want to say old school takes, but sort of a, a take that, that always rears itself whenever set-piece goals are conceded by a team who aren't marking man for man. And I guess I suppose that the question would be with the current guys that we have, let's say pre-Fafana, Aubameyang, you know, uh, Zakaria, sort of guys who have a little bit more of a physical profile, it, it, it's not remotely going to, to be a solution to what we're seeing. Yeah, I hate it. It's the worst, bro. Worst shout it's, it's, it is, you know what yeah. it is? It, it's like all the pl- players, ex-players on TV talking about zo- man marking. It's because they, it's what they did and it's what they're comfortable with. And I, they both have their weaknesses, man. Zonal marking, 
they say there's no accountability. Yeah, there is, because you're assigned a zone, and if a goal, goal, ball goes in there, you didn't contest the header enough when the ball was approaching your zone. Um, zonal marking allows you to be safer, I think, in terms of you can just block off areas. So when you do come up against a team who are smart with set pieces and they want to add some misdirection to the ball, if they want to go far post with the delivery um, and then the guy at the back post heads it back across goal and they've sort of X'd across each other in the run and so now you have someone who you wanted to be marking in front of the goal is now taken out away to the back post and they can't now defend something that's more important you're more susceptible to failing at something like that in, in, in man marking. Zonal marking at least ensures that your key people are in the areas you want them, I guess, in front of the goal primarily. Um, now, if you have a specialist like a Van Dyke or, or whoever, okay, cool. Yeah, put the best header you can on them. But at the same time, at the same time, like really, the attacker has the advantage anyway because they can get their run up from the edge of the 18, they have all the momentum with them, often an in-swinging delivery to help them. It's tough, it's tough, but I do think um, I do think there's a reason that most big teams now do a mix. I think a mix is the best thing. You can protect areas and you can put important assignments um, matched up 1v1. But I do, I just, the Southampton goal seemed like such a panicked, sort of I don't know what else to do move of just let's just put everyone in the box and nothing can go wrong and then what ended up happening was bad clearance from Asby Koulibaly's not able to get out quick enough um, whoever else it was as well wasn't and then Mendy's just guessed totally wrong um, and it's too late for the shot so yeah I think if we were to do man we'd get absolutely mullered to be honest <laughs> yeah I think that's that's definitely something that I've uh, developed absolute nightmares about it's I keep having flashbacks to to the FA Cup final where you've got uh, Van Dijk and uh, Kenyatta coming up for a corner and like Aspi. <laughs> Aspi is, is picking up one of them and I think Mason Mount or, or somebody equally as, as small was, was picking up the other. And it, it was sort of that moment where you realise that, yeah, you know, if we were to go... If we were to go fully, fully man with this Liverpool side, then, then somebody, you know, who's got a good four to six inch height advantage on somebody who's going to be completely free at set pieces here. Um, I think probably for for that portion of, of the, well, let's say part two, just reviewing some of the set pieces. And again, you know, I think, you know, Yaz is, is right to point out that with Zakaria and, and Fafana and potentially Aubameyang coming in as well, um, that, that that gives you a slightly different profile and somebody maybe a bit more natural when it comes to defending those areas. Um, moving into sort of the, the, the third part of this podcast, we'll be looking at sort of the attacking phase. So after the the uh, advertisements are coming up, we're looking a little bit in sort of the build-up, how that has changed from last season, what, what we're actually trying to do in terms of building up play at the moment, uh, looking a little bit at our, our chance creation in general, um, how that is is being manufactured, what is sort of the, the the game plan there, and then looking at sort of our finishing overall. So as usual, I uh, would like to thank the sponsors for financially con contributing to the show, and we will see you after this short break. Howdy, hey, it's your editor, Jake, here to say that this is not actually just a sponsor break, but the end of part one. Um, so when you're listening to this, this is part one. The next day, part two will come out. Uh, a few more topics from Joe and Yassine for the Tinkerman. And then, yeah, that's that's the August episode. So be back tomorrow for that. And until then, keep the blue flag flying high. <laughs>